Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Bernice Endy. Bernice is a horsewoman and adventurer who has ridden over 28,000 miles on horseback throughout the United States. Back in 2005, without any significant experience in long riding, Bernice set out by herself from her home in Trigo, Montana and headed south, 2,000 miles south, all the way to Albuquerque, New Mexico. In the following years, her rides became more and more ambitious, and her most recent trip stretched 8,000 miles from Montana to the coast of Maine and back, a journey that took over two and a half years to complete. Despite her record-setting adventures, Bernice is relatively new to long riding. She grew up on a Minnesota dairy farm and spent the majority of her adult life teaching ballet in cities such as San Francisco, Minneapolis, and Seattle. In 1992, she moved to Trigo, Montana, and opened a ballet school in a historic community hall building. After a decade of teaching there, she made the decision to take her first long ride. Since then, her story has been featured in numerous magazines, newspapers, and even on the Today Show. More importantly, her rides have inspired people of all ages to follow their dreams and pursue lives of adventure. Bernice is extremely gifted at telling her life story, so we had a fun and in-depth conversation. We discussed her background and the decisions that led her to strike out on her own on her first long ride. We talk about the mental challenges of pursuing such ambitious adventures and how she manages the emotional ups and downs of years on the road. She breaks down the specifics of her long rides, how far she rides each day, what she eats, where she sleeps, and all the other important details. She also shares some heartwarming stories of people she's met along the way, stories that will restore your faith in humanity, especially in the midst of our current volatile political climate. Thank you again to Bernice for taking the time to chat. Hope you enjoy this episode. Well, the first question I've been asking pretty much everybody I have on the podcast is when you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you that question, what do you do? Because I know you've done a lot of interesting stuff. How do you answer that? Well, they rarely ask me, what do I do? They ask me, what am I doing? (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, of course, they walk up there, they see me, I'm riding down the road, or they've stopped on the side of the road to visit, you know, and they've they've been piqued by curiosity or interest that, that this this image just pat, rolling, walla-gagging past them, and they've whirled around and they've stopped to visit, and they're asking, what am I doing? And... Um, I'm long riding. I'm traveling cross country. I'm an equestrian traveler and um, and one of maybe the only one in the United States who's doing this as a, um, this is my life. And, and I do this, um, I consider myself a professional long rider uh, that I've been doing for the past 12 years. And can you define for people who aren't familiar with that term exactly what a long ride is? Yes, a long rider as dis- a long ride as defined by the International Long Riders Guild is a 1000 mile continuous ride and I've done over 28,000 miles. 28,000 miles over how many trips? 
Oh, gosh. These have been continuous years. I haven't stopped. I haven't been in. I have been riding every year. Um, but I've put together, let's see, eight rides, and I did like a 600-mile vacation ride, and I did a, you know, but every year I've ridden about 3,000 miles or more. That's amazing. Um, so I want to really dig into that, but I think maybe bef- before we start into all the details about the rides, it might be helpful to, to find out more about your background and how you got into this. Um, so where did you grow up? I am a, and I proudly say it, I'm a Minnesota dairy farm girl. All right. I grew up on a dairy farm in Minnesota, and I say many times, I don't know that I could do what I'm doing had I not had that background. The tenacity, or the, the can, I call it can do that my father gave me. You know, we were poor dirt farmers during the, during the you know, the really, truly the end of that era of small dairy farmers. Um, they were just fading from the landscape at that time. So, um, but you know, you, it's called can do where you look at something, you haven't got a pot to piss in, and you've got to make it work. And that my father passed down to me. My mother passed on the love of the horizon. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw on your website, there's there's a great write-up there that I'll put links to in, on the webpage but, so people can see it. But you, you talk about how tough and hardworking your dad was, and you also talk about how your mother was such a huge influence on you. Can you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? Well, she came from a very different background. She had been uh, educated and had a university graduate and had been raised by great aunts. And these aunts were um, of well-to-do family and um, all Radcliffe um, or Harvard. Like my great aunt, Linda, graduated from Harvard, the first woman to graduate with a degree equal to a man's. So you can see there were there were formidable women, and there were women that um, did shape her life in that they brought culture and um, travel, books, education, the importance of all these things. So that was filtered into a farm family that you know were were poor dirt farmers, but but still inside this box was all that my mother brought to it. And so. From from looking at your your website and reading more about your bio, it sounds like you basically grew up on horseback. I imagine you don't even remember I the did. first time you no. you rode a horse. No. It's just kind of a rode natural it, rode, thing. Yeah, rode in my mother's belly. Did you? Yeah, well, I guess riding. so. And yeah. so, yeah. what is there now that you look back at your childhood? Can you make any sense of of what that attraction to horses? how that came to be because you've, you've obviously you know they, they've been a massive part of your life what yeah what do you what attracts you to, to horses and horseback riding and the lifestyle around horses well i don't know it, it could possibly be one could take it this far you know riding my mother had a love for horses as did my grandmother and as did my great-grandmother they were all horsewomen in one way or another, they spoke of their horses and and uh, and their riding um, and their love of the horses. So if I'm riding in my mother's belly and she's you know loving the horse, then I mean I must have loved it when I was in her belly, you know, riding. And then I remember as a, a an infant, I couldn't have been I don't know how old. I'm in my sister's arms and I'm reaching and grabbing for the mane on this little pony, our little crippled pony, and and crying because they wouldn't let me be with the pony. By five, four years old, I was riding by myself. And it was, and I, 
I think I became a horse for the first 13 years of my life. I know it sounds it sounds, but it's true. It was it was. No, that that sounds life. true. And and before we started recording, we were talking a little bit, and I was saying how much I read about history of the American West, and I recently read a book about the Comanches, and I think it sounds like a lot of those children had similar. Similar feelings, oh, you know, they they could ride absolutely. horses when they were four right. years old, bareback, mm-hmm. and shoot bows and arrows. I mean, it's there's a historical precedent for for that. I think uh, that's really that's really neat. And so when so I know you when you hit, I guess eighteen, nineteen, you you uh, had a I career. met boys, yeah, <laughs> I met boys, and you you also had a, a career in ballet that you're still still working in I today. Did. How, how did I you? Do. Go from a, a dairy farm in Minnesota to, to ballet. The horse. Really? The horse, yeah. I was studying uh, dressage at one point in my life. I was a young girl, young woman. So I must have been 17, 18 by the time I um, it was introduced to horses. My mother took us to see. Now, I knew about those things. I mean, anything horse-related, I knew about. And my mother took us to see the Lipizzaners. Um, the Australia, Austria um, Riding School, the Aust- um, whatever they're called, but it's the Lipizzaners, and they um, are dressage, high school dressage, and I saw that, and of course I had to learn to do it, and and it's the ballet of horsemanship, and from there, um, for some reason, somehow, I don't know, I got, I went to horses, I went to ballet, I felt like I had to, I had to be as fit or as capable as they were i knew i knew there was something about dance and and dressage and and riding like that that i just had to do and and then i left the horses for a number of years to study ballet but i was much too old to be a dancer i was 23 24 when i started dancing and i became and studied the royal academy of dance method and became a teacher in the field and taught for over 30 years and i know that that you taught all over the country where, where did that I take saw. you Oh gosh, I taught in San Francisco, and Minneapolis, and Portland, Seattle. Asked, you know, I, I, here and here. I mean, I taught here at my my community dance studio, which is in Trigo, which has you know population of less than two hundred people, and ran an after school program, <clears throat> and then also opened up the Whitefish School of Classical Ballet down in Whitefish. But the the program that I opened here was in uh, an old community hall with an outhouse and wood stove. And I made portable ballet bars and put up mirrors in the hall. And the community embraced me. And um, and the Sunburst Community Foundation supported my work. And I taught children that came from dirt floors that were, you know, very, very poor um, and never never exposed to anything like, like ballet. So I gave them ballet lessons during the winter, and I gave them dressage lessons during the summer up here at my cabin with my horses. And I did that for 10 years. And so what... What attracted you to move to Montana? You know, you'd, you'd been all over the place. Oh, I imagine you had yeah. opportunities wherever you'd want to be. And so what what was the, the draw to, to oh, gosh, rural Montana? Oh, gosh, listen to this. I know it. I know it. This is a really very interesting story because my, my 
my grandparents, my great grandparents settled out here in the Shoto area. Now that's over north of Helena. Mm-hmm. And there's the Hoy, the Hoys, it was the Hoys. And there's the Hoy Cooley, and they had a ranch there, and they were early homesteaders. And then my, so my grandfather uh, grew up there. My great, my grandmother, who was out of Radcliffe, um, coming from an, uh, an Eastern school, was living in Minneapolis. Uh, in our genealogy profile, it says the, her love of horses took her to Montana, where she taught school in a one-room schoolhouse in Bynum, near Bynum, mm-hmm. and met my, my grandfather, who was really pretty much a cowboy. Um, um, they fell in love, um, had my mother out here in Montana, um, failing prices, farm prices, sent them back to Minnesota, <clears throat> where where all of this happened. Then my mother grows up. My Then my, my father comes out and works at Glacier Park uh, before and after the Korean War. Oh, wow. And he worked out there for 16 years as a maintenance man, a wrangler, a mechanic, you know, you know, he's one of those guys, one of those men that could, you know, do all that kind of stuff and and um, and lived out there year-round. He's one of the few that lived out there year-round. My mother goes out there after the after the Korean War. She served in the in the service as a nurse and went out there. They met. Mm-hmm. She got pregnant. They go back to Minnesota, take over the old dirt farm. And so consequently, on the coffee table... There were these old black and white photos from my great great grandmother and her years out here in Montana and their years homesteading out here. She when they lived in a little log cabin. And what am I living in? A little log cabin that looks so much like her little log cabin. And he broke horses. Wow. That's neat. It all comes full it's in your blood. You can't oh, help right, it. Right, right. It's quite <laughs> quite natural for me to gravitate to Montana. So you had been in Montana uh, teaching ballet, living up there, and then how did this idea first come into your head to do a super long ride? ride? I mean, I know, was it something that had been in the back of your mind forever, or was it something that just popped in one day and you said, that's a great idea, I'll I'll try that? How How did it come to be? Never. I never thought, I mean, I have... I have had thousands of people say to me, I've always wanted to do that. I've dreamt about doing a long ride, riding, getting on my horse and riding across. It's a legendary romantic image, you know, and it's, I mean, I'm just like, I like cannot believe how many people have told me this because it was never a dream of mine. And I cried the day I left and I thought, this is so stupid. Why am I doing this? You know, at that point when you have to jump into the cold water, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're uh, standing on the edge of the precipice and you're like, I can't do this. <laughs> I don't want to go. Yep. But ego has set you forth and you can't. Everyone's standing behind you going, are you ready? Going to go, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you have to go. And I rode right into a nightmare. Oh my God, it was a horrible nightmare. It's just a nightmare. But I, I, I was at the end of my teaching career. I knew that I did not want to teach anymore, and although I have returned to it. But at that point, it was time to stop teaching. And I had been single for a long time. I had been divorced and, and never remarried. I devoted my, my years and my time to the children and the program and and um, really just set myself down that track. And um, and then there's other things I had, I had through the divorce, I had developed alopecia. So I had, I, when I left, I was a 50 year old bald woman, completely bald. Alopecia is hair loss. 
and I looked probably like a cancer patient, although I was very, very healthy and very strong and, and was living a very um, arduous life. And uh, But I just, you know, there was really something just, I don't know. You know, I was training. I also trained horses for the Mercury Ranches down here in Trigo. And I did, you know, maybe five or six of his horses um, every year, brought them up here and did some training on them. But um, and I was training two horses. I was up on a on a mountainside, with leading one, pony one, and riding the other. And and it was an idea that just like shot like lightning bolt through my head that I was gonna, I'm just gonna get on and I'm just gonna ride. I'm just gonna ride. There was a relationship that I was hoping would mature, and I just knew it wasn't going to happen. And and I just needed to just go and just leave. Although, I mean, it's really easy to say that <laughs> and then to actually get going doing it. But that's that's how I, I did. I just It was like a, a window of opportunity that opened, and I climbed through. And so... And, and never, ever expected that I would ride this long. Never, never had had anything written on the back of my my back saying, you know, I'm riding for a purpose or anything. There was never anything like that when I started. I mean, it has matured into something more, but um, I certainly didn't think it, it was a nightmare. It was a holy hell of a nightmare. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. You know, th- yeah. that is a huge undertaking. I mean, it's a huge undertaking no matter what. And I would imagine no. now that you've been doing it for as long as you have, yeah. it's still a, a huge undertaking. So how did... How did you even begin to to figure out how to do it? I mean, I, I guess trial and error. Um, you just just yeah, started and figured it out. Right. It was. I know. And I didn't look. I really didn't look around me. I was like, I was so thinking, like, I'm probably the only one who's ever done this. You know, I'm thinking, oh, no one's ever done a ride like this. You know, I didn't know. I was completely inner, ignorant of the International Long Riders Guild and their page and their work and, and that there would have been other people who w- could have given me information on how to do a long ride. But I had in my mind, I, you know, I, I fancied myself a fairly competent horsewoman and, and yeah, but you know, you go out on a long ride, you're, you're treading, you know, rough waters that very few people will ever, ever undertake, you know, the, the, you know, to be alone at night like that or to be riding down busy highways with animals that can do just about anything and the near misses that occur or just simply never knowing each and every night where your food, water, and shelter is going to come from. You don't know, and you've got to be able to, you have to have the competency or the strength and the focus and the tenacity to, you know, like override your fears and, and stay focused and all of that. You know, I mean, those are all things that, you know, I mean, nobody can prepare you for that. You just have to do it again and again and again and again. But um, well, you mentioned, I don't know. You mentioned the emotional ups and downs, and that's that's oh, something my. I'm really interested in because you know, I don't obviously don't do anything like what you're doing, the, those types of adventures. But I do some of these ultra endurance events. And I found that over the course of 24, 36 hours, you can have these huge swings and ups and downs. Absolutely. And so I'm always curious when talking to people who've experienced that in one way or another, have you figured out a a method or a technique that you use when you feel that coming? Because I I would imagine you still have those swings, even though you've been doing this for for quite a while. And is there, have you found a, a method that that helps to to kind of get through those low points and and push through to to 
back to the, the either the medium points or the high points? I think it is embracing the immediacy of every second and letting those moments by moments carry you through. You attach yourself to the moments and they, instead of, you just have to completely stop the mind from looking past the immediacy of your life. What is in front of you, what you can smell, what you can hear, what you can see is what you go by. And you shut down, you shut down all those preconceived notions because that's what's driving you crazy. That's what's making you nuts. It's like, you can't, you can't, you know, are you going to make it? Um, you know, what if you fail? Um, um, you know, something hurts, something hurts, like your body hurts, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're, you know, you're fatigued, you forget about all that. That's got to be out of there. You're just, you're just looking, you, you, you attach yourself to the, the immediacy of every moment and let that carry you through because, you know, it will, it'll eventually, you know, change. Yes. And, of, and of course, you know, understanding that, having a very clear concept of understanding that it will change, having the faith that it will change, and it will change. That's, that's, that is life. But um, um, Yeah, I think that, and I th- unfortunately, I think the only way to learn that is through experience, through, <laughs> through going absolutely. through these things and then realizing Ab- you always come out of it. Um, and, and, you know, it'd be nice if you could just read a book about it and figure it out and then implement it. But I really think the only way to, to, to learn it is to go out there and get, get whipped a little bit and then, uh, and then come out of it. Um, Mm -hmm. so you, you were in the, the teaching world surrounded by students, you know, lots of interaction, changing, changing these children's lives on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. you go off onto a ride like this, this, the exact opposite as far as solitude being by yourself. What, what was that like? Because it seemed that, you know, obviously you're, you you seem to be a a real people person and you've got a gift for teaching and you are, are, you know, made a career of that. And how was it going from that to being almost completely alone? Well, it's a misconception that you're going to be alone. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> there's people everywhere. Yeah. And it's a magnet. You know, uh-huh. this is an iconic image, and it is a magnet. People just cannot stay away. They are there at, at your campsites. It's amazing. You know, they're there. Of course, now it's more so that I've ridden this many miles, but, but. I, of course, you know, you've got your, your alone time, but, you know, I've lived alone. You know, I've lived alone for a very long time, and I've lived up in a very remote community. Of course, I've had, you know, phone. I never did carry a cell phone. I've never carried a cell phone. I've never carried any of that kind of, of technology, no GPS or anything. Um, so I did not have contact. But, again, the immediacy of life was so it was so, I was just, it was slamming in my face every second of the day. There was, you know, I held my horse in my hand for two weeks because she was, he was so nervous. I did not sleep in a tent. I slept outside for the first three years. I never, I didn't have a tent because I, I couldn't get in and out fast enough. I never used a, 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 a sleeping bag with a zipper because wow. I couldn't get out of things fast enough to be at that horse's side when panic arose throughout the middle of the night. I would sleep maybe three or four hours 
I'd be awake. It'd sleep three, four hours, but it was a, and, and day and night never, never, it, it melded together. The, the day completely changed for me, you know, understanding that I would get my sleep sometimes in the shade, but I would be up working with the horses just to keep them from running off because something was out in the woods, you know, terrifying us or, or, um, you know, just staying up because, you know, I, I had to be up at three o'clock in the morning to ride before the heat started. You know, the, you know, this, this little, these little blocks that we have, we work eight hours and then we sleep eight hours. Well, that was all just trashed. Mm-hmm. It was, it was 24 seven and I loved it. So I loved it. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds like you were almost, almost forced to, to be in the moment. There was no, Absolutely. no time there to, no, to, to, to think. No um, so for people, or for me, and for everybody else listening, can you kind of walk us through, I don't know, kind of the, the technical parts of this? You know, how many miles a day do you generally do? Um, how do you get food and water, and, and where do you sleep? I mean, what just the, the most basic parts of, the, of the, this operation, how, how does it play out on a daily or weekly basis? Right. Well, I know I get asked this question all the time. And it so varies from time of the year, um, weather conditions, how many horses I'm traveling with, um, what the road conditions are like, whether I'm traveling mountain, whether I'm traveling plains, whether I'm headed into the wind, whether I'm not, if I've got hot sun, if I've got rain. All of these are varied variables. Let's just take the trip this last year that I finished this 8,000-mile ride and the beginning of that ride, I, sh- I shot off down the Rocky Mountains, headed east to the east coast. So I've got the wind behind me. It's early spring. I've got a lot of snow. And I have to make a whole lot of miles because spring is my time of the year to make a lot of miles because it's cool. And I can travel a long time with these horses. They've got extra hair on their coats. They don't have, it, it helps buffer them, so I, I'm, I'm conditioning them with, with extra padding with their hair. They're fresh. Um, I've got, like I said, I've got the wind at my back. That's a good thing. It's pushing me. So I'm doing 30, 35 miles a day, and I'm doing 600 miles in a month so that I'm over into Minnesota by the time the heat sets in and I've got to slow way down and I've got to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I can ride till 10 o'clock. Food, water, shelter, <clears throat> it's all iffy. I eat basically a lot of wild foods. I eat dandelions, nettles, and lambs, quarters, watercress, things I can pick out there. I always have greens of some sort. I'll carry hard-boiled eggs. I'm, I don't eat too much meat anymore. Um, nuts and seeds. Um, and then I'll fill up when I get into town. But I eat really pretty sparse and pretty light. Um, there's a fair amount of you know, walking, I, I'm not in the saddle as much as most people would think. I'm usually walking at least three hours a day. I try to get 10 miles, 10, 15 miles on my feet. Um, but, um, and of course, food and water for the horses is, you know, that really varies. I've ridden across Death Valley. I've crossed all, uh, Sonora, Mojave, and, and the Little Red Desert of Wyoming. And those conditions are, you know, that's a that's a whole different story than riding up here up north where there's grass and water everywhere. It's just a piece of cake and or there is a house door to knock on and you ride in and you humbly step down off your high horse and you ask for 
what you need and hopefully they won't chase you off. Of course they never have, but, but, um, um, that is, that is always a source. You've got, if you've got, you've got a house, well, you, you've got food and water. You just have to be able to go up and ask and, you know, and carry out offer if you need to offer some money or, or, um, you know, something if they'd like something, but, um, can you give an example of, of, um, when you have gone up to a house, I, I would just imagine you, you interact with so many people over the course of one of these mm. trips. Are there mm. any stories that mm. stand out in your mind that kind of reaffirm your faith in humanity, mm. just to, somebody being oh, just my super oh. kind? Oh, my gosh. There's, that's just on a daily basis. My goodness sakes. I do think, I do think sometimes that, you know, I, if I could just take everybody out there and show you, you know, the, truly the heart of America, you know, you just would you would just see a whole different world. You would you would be revived with your faith in humanity. It really is. Although people point out to me, yes, but Bernice, you you are seeing the best of of America. You are seeing you are you are in the best of these situations. And and I ride in, and I most often, not always, but most often, my riding in there produces a smile on their face, because you can imagine what it must be like. There they are. They come out their door, and look what has just ridden into the dog is barking, and look what has just ridden into their yard. You know, these two horses packed and traveling, this woman who looks weathered and a big hat and boots and spurs, and, and, you know, I mean, obviously I'm not just riding out for an afternoon jaunt, but this is something that stops them, and they are like, what in the world are you doing? doing who where are you going who are you and why did you ride into my place and it's like you know they the doors swing open you know they how could they not i mean i i'd be so startled myself if something like me rode up and and i also think it's a great advantage because i am a woman and i'm older and I do keep myself very tidy, and I have a card that I show them. I give them. I give everyone it's a postcard card, and it's got my all of my information, the website, and and a photo, and and um, um, so I and I you know I and I enjoy visiting with people and hearing their stories and passing those stories on. But oh my gosh, it's uh, I I I you know I do try. You know, I'll be riding along, and it's getting about time. I've got to either, if I do, if I'm in this situation where I'm riding along, and I do have to stop and ask for water, and so I, I'm starting to look for a place, you know. So I'm kind of, all right, I ride by. Oh, no, I'm not going to stop there. Okay, well, oh, look, at there's a place over here. No, I'm not going to stop. And then I, I'll see a place, and, and it's obviously, you can tell that it's a senior lives there, an older an older somebody, a, a man, woman, or couple that yep. lives there. It's an, a, an old farmhouse, right? And I like to ride into those because I can only imagine this must kind of spice up their life. Now, you've got to remember the first, what, how many years? The first 20,000 miles, I had a dog riding on one of my horses. Oh, did you, you know, really? See, I mean, this is like a dog and pony act, right? Yeah. You ride in, there's a dog sitting up on top of one horse, and, and I'm on the other side. I mean, it must be just like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is going to be a story they're going to tell for a very long time. So so I do try and catch seniors, but I rode into one woman's house, and I was crossing Iowa, 
Her name was Anna, and she was a single woman, a little tiny woman, and she was alone, and she wasn't going to let me stay, but I talked her into letting me stay, and she had an old barn that was dilapidated and falling down, and, and her story, she had come over from Germany as, a, as a, um, a male bride and married a man that she'd never seen before. He was German, and, and, and just her story, and, and, um, and, and that the children had grown, and she was kind of lonely, and, and how hard it was coming over and being with this man and, and sort of sharing a few of her personal secrets and that it was really difficult for her and, and that he wasn't always such an easy man. And, 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 we, and I stayed all morning visiting with her and she gave me, I needed a new shirt and so she gave me a, one of his shirts and, you know, of course, filled my saddlebags and more coffee and more coffee and more stories before I rode out. But I know. That's that's great. I I think everybody, including myself, could, uh, especially these days with the the way the, I don't know, political climate is, I think everybody could benefit from getting out and just seeing how the the majority of people are. They're they're good people, and they just want to help. They are. They are good people. They are. They are. Um, So on this latest ride you did from coast to coast, Mm -hmm. you – you you move fast through the spring, slow through the summer, right. then into the fall, and then when winter came, what did you do? I wintered in New York in a barn. I've been with the horses, um, sleeping with the horses since 2008 that, that I started doing because it was so difficult for me to come in from a ride and, and go into a house and then go back out. You know, at this age, it's like you you better be – stay fit and keep doing it or you're not going to ha- it's not going to hold with you my i call them anticipatory skills you know the ability to anticipate things or your reaction time and 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 balance and coordination skills that are imperative out there you know you've got to be fast and those things um, they deteriorate so fast if you leave, lead a sedentary life. And so I started living with the horses. So I have spent, I don't know how many winters, out um, in a barn. And I did there also on the edge of Fort Edwards. It's a town near Albany, north of Albany, Saratoga Springs, in that area, New York. And um, I... I met this woman uh, as I was traveling east. Uh, she was sitting on her porch, and and she called out as I was riding. Bo- oh, no, I called out, and I said, you have a lovely, don't you have, you have a lovely yard. And uh, she was talking on the phone, and she called out, oh, are you out exercising your horses? And I was kind of feeling <laughs> kind of sport. I was feeling kind of sporty because I spent the night with food and, and I had a good rest. And, and I said, no, well, yes, indeed. I've, I've exercised my horses from Montana, and now I'm going to exercise them to Maine. And I clipped up into a trot and rode past her. Well, <laughs> she, came out, she came out later because I was not far down the road taking a break. And, um, and I met this woman, and she invited me in to spend the winter there. So I rode over to Maine, and then I rode back into New York, um, that 300 miles and wintered there. I got there sometime late November and then wintered in a barn. The horses were outside. I set my tent up. I've, you know, I have developed a, a method of putting my, 
I'm putting my very comfortable winter tent up, which is like a, it's like a yurt is what it is, basically is what it's a yurt, but I can cook in there Mm -hmm. and I can be warm and it's pretty and it's clean. And I had, um, I was a mile, I was a mile from the library. I mean, I was able to walk to the library. I exercised the horses throughout the city streets every day, waving at everybody, all bundled up, riding bareback. And here are these two horses and this woman riding around and they all knew me. I did 32 talks that winter. It was just, they were just absolutely enthralled with this woman who had ridden from Montana. I mean, I'm not, it's not me. It's, it's the story. Sure. It's the story about all of us. It's this, it's, it's, you know, the love of adventure. It's the, it's the daring. It's the, that we all embrace. Well, most people do embrace. And if they don't embrace it, you know, they think you're nuts. But, but even so, you know, they'll, they just, it's like, huh, huh, maybe, you know, it, it challenges their fears of, of like, I don't know, she can do that. Well, maybe I can do something. So it, it, it is, it is something that, um, I know over the course of the years that it has, that it isn't me. It isn't about me. I mean, I have my personal issues and my, my personal story, but I know that, they what they are looking at is something that's a reflection of what's inside of them. Mm-hmm. And as a woman, uh, I know that you you do some some work to promote the, the women's leadership. And and yeah, can you talk a absolutely. little more about that? Because I think I think right. it's even more unique uh, that you're able to do this as a as a as a woman and inspire absolutely. so many young women to to follow their dreams like this. Or older women. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, any, or any older age, women. Sure. Yeah, my my age. That is, that I find really quite extraordinary. Is women my age? But yes, my all of these women that I spoke of earlier, these great aunts, my my grandmother, my great grandmother, they were all early suffragettes. They were they were part of that that mass of women that were fighting for the right to vote and other other things that were really quite extraordinary at that time, you know, the, the ability to simply ride astride a horse or to simply ride a bicycle or to simply have control over your money or to have say over your children. Those things did not exist for us from that long ago. And we lived with that, without these freedoms for many, many years. So yes, I do. And over the course of these years, I've come to, you know, I hope inspire other women to um, to reach beyond their fears and seek leadership positions. I I feel that we should stand not in the shadow of men, but next to them. And I think it would make us all better people, both men, women, and and our country. I I think it's very important that we have more women who would like to partake in those positions. I agree. Um, if This is a big question, and it would probably take a book to, to answer it, but I understand you're writing a book, so maybe that's what this is, this is it's about. It's coming out this year. Oh, is it really? Well, I want yeah, to hear country, more. Bar Country Press, yes. Really? Mm, um, well, you may answer this in the book, um, but if you had to – Think about yourself before you started doing these long rides and then think about mm. yourself right now. Mm. What would you say is the biggest change in you personally? You know, I think I felt this 
on my first ride. And the name of the book is In My Own Skin. And that's what happened. I hit the wall about a thousand miles into that ride. I literally, as you know about walls, hitting walls, yes. if you do marathons like that, you know what it's like. And um, I had help getting me through it. And after I got back in the saddle and I moved on past the wall, I felt like I had climbed into my own skin for the first time. I felt like, and I wrote this in the book, I felt like a duck who had just discovered water <laughs> and, a, and could fly. And um, I felt like in the absence of mankind, all this stuff, that I found out the true nature of what she, this woman inside of me, really had. The potential, the strength, the courage, I never knew existed. And if I did, I didn't know it. If I had it, I didn't know it. But I came to know it. And it took years, though, learning how to wear it well. It's taken years to learn it learn it truly and I've I've often thought because I've had no mentors there were no female mentors there was there was no other woman who's you know who could like you know I, I draw my inspiration from women like Susan B. Anthony or my great aunt but but as far as long riding I was I was when I first started I was so sure people were going to laugh at me I was so sure they were going to say what the hell do you want lady get out of here you want water well, stay home. You wouldn't need any water. This is the stupidest thing in the world. I just so, I mean, I was, I was raised in a relatively conservative home. And I mean, women just didn't do this. You just don't do things like this. So I thought, I rode with this for years, with this idea, this thought that people would either yell at me or turn me away if I asked for help, or they would um, think I was really stupid. And well, you know, of course, there's a fair amount who who rightfully so can think that I'm crazy. But um, but that is what I discovered was this 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 being, this woman that is in the absence of fear, there's freedom. Mm-hmm. And that is that is what I discovered. Well, I can't wait to read the book. You said it comes out. When did you say it comes out next year? It'll be out this year, Christmas time, oh, or before great. Christmas, um, in in my own skin by Far Country Press. Great. Well, when it comes out, I'll I'll obviously send it out to on on all our social networks and that kind of stuff. But and I'll I'll pre-order it. I want to read it. Um, well, there. Oh, here here's one question I've asked pretty much everybody <clears throat> that I've interviewed, um, and I've gotten a lot of different interesting answers. So I'd like to hear what you think. Like like we were talking about before we started recording, I. I do a lot of work in the conservation business, mm-hmm. and you obviously Wonderful. live very close to the land and, and close to nature and with animals. And when you think of the word conservation, how would you define that word? Because I, I know it has a lot of meanings to a lot of different people, but what, what does it mean to you? Well, I would certainly attach the, the word sustainability onto that, and um, I don't know, I... I, I I would associate it with um, environmentally um, concerned um, use of the land. Mm-hmm. That it is that it is um, it is used in a functional way, and yet in a very pragmatic way that allows for um, um, use by 
by many, not just animals, people, um, you know, like, 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 I, I, this is my, my idea of a really, a, a really far great conservation program is the pro- conservation over program over by um, Ovando. But they, what they've done is it's along a river and they've got big ranches. But the ranchers have now provided access for fly fishing, and they're working to keep um, a healthy um, habitat for grizzlies and wolves, and and um, and and working together to monitor noxious weeds, and working together to um, help fortify a good, healthy grassland, and and yet, you know, provide a place for hunters, and and. I just applaud them. Yeah, that sounds perfect. You know, it seems to you know nothing. Nothing is ever perfect, but it seems like they're that program is doing. Uh, it's it's kind of doing the best for everybody, all the different stakeholders in that area, from hunters to ranchers to the wildlife. Um, yeah, that's real neat. I'm gonna look that up, and I'll put a link to that on the webpage because that's I you wanna, could, I, you'll you'll find it over there if you look up Ovando over that area. I you'll, love that you'll area. Find it. I used to drive. That there is a lot. spectacular. It really is. I am certainly. I am so. I am such a proponent of public lands. I really feel it is so important. I I I I, I after I rode down through Texas, um, where there's two percent of the land is in public domain. It was like riding down a hallway and every door was locked. That's a great analogy. (laughs) I came back and I thought, oh my gosh, what we have got up here in these public lands. It's it's our national treasure. It is our national treasure by far. And that we really do need to learn to manage this well. I know it is controversial. I cannot imagine managing it. I just can't even imagine. It's very, very complicated, you know, with natural resources and and the cost of maintaining them and all the rest of it. Of course it is, but still. It's, uh, um, I'll tell you though, this, this recent threat to the public lands by the, yes, the new administration, I, I think one I of the great things about that is that it's brought together so many groups who normally are not on the same side. Like it's brought yes. together kind of the, the environmentalist bird watcher yes. types who'd like to go hiking yes. with hardcore elk hunters because they all right. love public lands and it's all an important yeah. thing. And, and so I think it's, while it's, it's been unpleasant, this, this fight over it, I think in the end, I think everybody's going to come out strong and we're going to find a lot more common ground than we, we had before because everybody's really realizes just how important and how unique these public lands are. Um, well, I've got some quick questions that I've asked most of the the people that I've interviewed, and um, I, I'd love to run a few of these by you. And your your answers don't have to be quick, but um, okay. if you had to recommend a few of your favorite books, and they could be about the American West or really about any subject, are there any books that come to mind that you that you are especially meaningful to you? Oh my gosh! Let me think. Let me think. What is especially meaningful to me? It's hard to it's hard to pick just one. Yeah, I don't know that I could. Do I have to pick one? No, you can pick as many as you want. Oh just whatever whatever comes to mind. 
<laughs> I'm going to say this. This is like, this is just going to like get, throw everyone for a loop is because I love reading Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan's work. I just love reading his work. Do you really? But I also, yeah, I do. Um, Steg, uh, Wallace Stegner is a oh, very favorite of me. And um, um, uh, Mary Oliver's writing is very, uh, very important to me. And uh, Sinclair Lewis, I think, is a, is a very fine writer. And, yeah, those are all great. Wallace Stegner, I, I've just recently I I started digging it. into his stuff, and um, he it's just amazing. And and I, I read another book, which you may find interesting, recently. It came out maybe last year, the year before last, um, by a guy named David Gessner, and it's a double biography of Wallace Stegner and Edward Abbey, and it kind of oh, compares, compares and contrasts the two. And uh, you really just learn a lot about the the history of the American West and about um, the personalities of those guys and all the the hard work that they did. Um, it's it's pretty cool. It's called All the Wild That Remains. It's a it's a good one. Okay. Um, so when you're not, you've got so many varied interests from ballet. I understand you're you're uh, great at piano as well with the horses. Are I there do. any? Are there any um, hobbies you have that may be surprising to the listeners that that they may that that may be kind of unexpected? Hmm. It's all kind of unexpected hmm. to me. Hmm. 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 <laughs> um, hmm. I draw. Do you really? I do, I do. Yeah, I do art projects. I do. I have a a leaf display that I did, a dried leaf display. Yeah, I draw. I, I do weavings. I've got those on my walls. And, um, those, yeah, I those do are yoga, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Um, so if you had to think of the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in the outdoors, and that could be funny, it could be scary, just in all your years and years and years of being in the outdoors, is there one thing that, that comes to mind as kind of the, the craziest event <laughs> that's ever happened? I'm sure you've got a laundry list of, of crazy events. Oh, my gosh. You know, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, this isn't crazy, but it is, it is poignant. And that was riding to the East Coast and going onto the Atlantic Ocean and riding on the beach side to have ridden that far. How, how, I don't know. I, you know, it, it, it was. It's just the the. You know to. You know to have reached it, and then you are riding your horses on on the ocean. And where were you on the Atlantic coast when you did that? I was near Kennebec. Wow. That's south uh, of uh, Portland, Maine. Yeah, that's and and how long had it taken you to get there from Montana? Eight months. Wow. I can't even imagine that. I mean, there's no, it's just, un, that's just unbelievable to me to try to wrap my head around. Um, and so last of the quick questions, um, in all that you've seen throughout the West, um, is there anything that pops out in your mind as either the biggest challenge or the biggest opportunity facing the American West? It very well could be the, the public lands that we already spoke about, but is there, does anything pop out just in all your travels? 
Well, it's staggering. I think the growth is staggering mm-hmm. that I have seen since I started writing in 2005. I see these enormous corridors that are forming. We have the corridors on our on our coastlines, of course, you know, that run the full gamut of the of the coast. But I also see a, a coast or a, a line of development running from Edmonton down to Calgary, down to Kalispell, down to Denver, down to Santa Fe. That whole corridor mm-hmm. is developing. And then I see again on over on in the on the Midwest from Minneapolis up into Canada, down into Minneapolis, down into Kansas, and then going down into Texas. That's a whole corridor that's developing. That that it's just connected by freeways and, and, and enormous growth. And then from that, from those sides, both sides of those, that's spilling out, you know, all of the, um, the, um, uh, Midwest or the Western States, Wyoming and, and Montana that have been oiled, uh, opened up for oil and gas exploration. That was open space when I started in 2005. And now it's just simply a ma- maze of roads for the most part throughout those country that country and that how much how much change has occurred there that you know i don't know i don't know how do you stop it how do you slow down this progression of of humanity i don't know i don't know yeah there's no simple answer you know i think anytime anybody offers up an answer that's one sentence you can tell that they don't really know what they're talking about because it's the reality is it's it's enormously complex um and the growth staggering. It's staggering, and it it, it really is. It's staggering. It, I see, like yourself, there's a folding in from the West Coast people into the center of the United States, and the East Coast people folding into. You know, it's the same thing. Migrating, they're just migrating. Of course, the the immigrants that are mi- migrating here. I mean, it's it, we really are going through. I mean, you know, a, an historical time of change for the United States. We are. No no question about that. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Um, so if you could make a request of the people who are listening to this podcast, and they're basically people that love the American West, and, and they mm-hmm. show that love either through recreation or through their jobs in conservation or ranching or through adventures like, like you've done, um, if you could make a request of those people listening, what would it be? A request? Yeah, just kind of, it, maybe you could give them advice, or you could um, ask, you know, be continue to be kind to people, uh, you know, pay attention to the, to the environment. Um, just, uh, I don't know, impart some words of wisdom, per- perhaps. Well, certainly, certainly fill their days and their hours and their minutes with gratitude that we have this and that we that we uh that we choose to keep it. Yeah. That's great. So how can people connect with you, learn more about you? I know you've got a website, I know you're on social media. What are mm-hmm. can you can you list those off for us? It's um um www.endyofthetrail.com and then um Facebook um, is um, Bernice Andy. Great. You can Google and you can Google my name, and all of that will pop up. So. Perfect. Well, and, I, and I'll have links to everything so people can just visit the website and click through. And uh, 
if you just type your name into YouTube, like I did, a ton of really interesting videos show yeah. up. And so I, I encourage right. people to do that. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It was very, very interesting. I'm going to go get on my horses and go for a ride. I'm a, I'm in training phase right now. I'm training a new horse out. So I'm in training phase. So I'm riding, riding and riding. Well, what's the next adventure? Them. Well, I've got this year I've got um, um, to train this new horse out. Um, so it is a training year. I will, I will stay pretty much just in this area of the Northwest. I'll do ride over, cross the Rocky mountains and ride over to the Helena area to my, uh, East. And then I'll ride across to, uh, the West over to Eastern, uh, Washington. And then I've got a talk at Harvard in the fall. And the next year I want to be on the East coast from 2018 to 2020, because it's the hundredth anniversary of women's rights to vote. And um, and there'll be celebrations all over the place. And I want to be out riding during that time of our historical event. So I'm preparing the horses for an East Coast ride, which, you know, it's pretty serious riding over there. Sure. Well, good luck with everything. If I'm ever up in Montana, I'll uh, I'll give you a ring because I'd, I'd love yeah, to, right. <laughs> to meet in person. <laughs> well, I thought maybe you'd be jog up. Yeah. <laughs> run. You'd be run up. <laughs> hey. It's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.